I'm going to share a message. It um, started around the idea of Human Rights Day. Tomorrow is Human Rights Day, and obviously with a lot that's going on around the gender-based violence run. Just by the way, there's a launch event at Hillcrest uh, Villages, which you're all invited to. In fact, everybody's invited. And even if you're not gonna run, you're welcome to come out. There's gonna be really some nice stuff for kids, jumping castles and coffees. And even if you're not gonna run, come tomorrow morning and just be a part of a movement that is starting to say to this community, this city, this country, that it is over. We see you. We see you to the victim, but but we see you to the perpetrator and we're going to make some noise around this stuff and we're done. This is our nation. This is our responsibility. We're the church. We're going to shine bright and we're going to make some noise. So come along, walk a kilometer. Uh, don't walk a kilometer. Have a coffee and cheer everybody else on. But you are invited to come around tomorrow. Um, so the idea was around human rights and, um, and, and I want to read a passage to you um, that I believe is really about human rights, um, but it's far more than a human rights passage. And uh, the title of the message is called An Inconvenient Truth, An Inconvenient Truth. And before I read this particular passage, it's 14 verses. Uh, before I read it, let me just kind of set you up for what we're going to be reading. This is Jesus in the book of Matthew, so it's his words. Um, and it's Jesus speaking about a uh, when everything's kind of said and done, when everything's wrapped up, when the world gets kind of done and dusted, when our lives are finished, there will be a judgment over our lives. There will be a calling for the lives that we've lived. And uh, he, he begins to explain how he's going to judge us. Um, and I know the word judge kind of makes us feel a little uncomfortable, um, but I would rather know what's coming and live accordingly than kind of live blissfully ignorant and then land on a judgment day where God starts to do certain things that he says in his word. And so it's so important for us as Christians to present the gospel and the full gospel and the full word of God to go, this is what God is saying in his word. And so this is what Matthew 25 is. It's laying out what's going to happen. And he speaks about two groups of people, sheep and goats. And a little disclaimer, we want to be the sheep, not the goats. And so let me read it with you guys. And I trust as we read the word of God that we would do it with faith in our hearts. I know sometimes, uh, we all kind of fall privy to it at times, is that we read the Word and our mind turns off. But it's really important that when we do the public reading of Scripture, that we engage, that our, our minds are alert. And so we take like even cognizance right now to go like, I'm going to concentrate and God, my heart and my ears are open to what you're saying as we do the public reading of Scripture. And so here it is, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, it says, But when the Son of Man, speaking about Jesus, comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in His presence, and He will separate the people as a shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. He will place the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left. Then the king, being Jesus, will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones, the sheep, replied, and they said, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. This year we're looking at lovers of truth. I tell you the truth. 
When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to the ones on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Just quick disclaimer here. I know when we speak about hell or eternity in hell, it kind of gets some people's backs up. Notice that Jesus makes it very clear that hell was not prepared for humans. It was prepared for the devil and his demons. That being said, church, we need to know the truth that unless we're making kingdom godly decisions, that there is something that was not prepared for us. But if we don't take on the, if we don't make the correct choices around our lives, that unfortunately there is a space that the Bible makes clear that according to our choices, we either go to an eternity in heaven or an eternity in hell. But it wasn't God's desire that we would, it wasn't created for humans. Then he goes, for I was hungry and you did not feed me, and I was thirsty and you did not give me a drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. Pretty potent passage found in the book of Matthew. And I want to give a couple of observations right up front and then hopefully give us some helpful ways that we can build a life of being the sheep that God requires, expects, wants of our lives. The first observation that I want to make from this text, um, and that is something that I've already kind of alluded to, is that when it's all said and done, Jesus' judgment on the world will be based on some of our actions. Now, I know that this is quite difficult for some of us, and we're not going to get into a deeply theological discussion today, because there are scriptures that says when you open up your heart to Jesus, that you receive eternity, that you receive salvation, and this is true. But what is also true is Matthew 25, that says according to our actions, that we will be held accountable, and that we will be judged. And so here's what I would argue if I was sitting around a table with you, and you said, it can't be about your actions, I would say I agree with you. It can't be about your actions. The scriptures make that clear. It's about your faith, and it's about the work of the cross, and it's about what Jesus did. But what I would argue back with you is that if you truly encountered Jesus and the work of the cross, you would not be arguing with me about the actions that you should be doing in the name of Jesus, for Jesus, and because of Jesus, because you would be so compelled and so moved by the work of the cross that Matthew 25 would be something that you go, this is obvious, why we're debating it. Does it make sense? Okay, so the first observation is there absolutely is a requirement of action out of our lives as Christians and followers, and there is a clear and eternal consequence based on what we do or don't do, and church, this should not just get our attention, it should get our action, and you'll see in a moment that getting our attention is not enough, and many of us, maybe not this church, but many times as Christians, God can get our attention, but it's not followed with our action. And this may be the very difference between sheep and goats. Let's look at point number two, observation number two. The second observation would be that there's obviously a difference between sheep and goats. He uses sheep and goats to give us an analogy um, or a picture or imagery of who we could be. Now, the first observation around sheep and goats that I want to make is... And maybe the best way to explain sheep and goats is to explain sheep and pigs. Stay with me for a moment. 
sheep going to a slaughter, that's why we have the saying, as a sheep goes to, they don't even know. They're just like mosey on in. They're like, okay, cool. Whatever you want, let's go. A pig going to a slaughter kicks and bites and fights and contorts and tries to get out of it as much as possible. Now, a goat is probably somewhere in between a sheep and a pig. It may not fight as much, but it certainly isn't a sheep that is surrendered and yielded. And so much of the imagery that God is perhaps trying to say to us is, are you, is your will bent and surrendered to the things of God? Or is there still this kind of fight in you that you look like a sheep, but you'll put up a fight when God asks you to surrender your life and your will to him? The second observation around the sheep and the goats is obviously this idea that looking at like a flock, you perhaps wouldn't notice the difference sometimes between sheep and goats. They can look a little similar. So like you can do, you can act like a sheep, you can come to church like a sheep, you can worship like a sheep, you can act like a Christian, but if you're not actually a sheep and you're a goat, there's consequence. And so God is trying to establish here, just because you look like a sheep doesn't mean you're actually a sheep. The third observation that I want to make from this passage is obviously this idea that in this particular parable, what separates sheep and goats is how they treat the least. That's very obvious by this passage. The scriptures speak about these potential lists or like criteria of the least. And it names a couple like naked, hungry, stranger, sick, in prison. And, um, and I think for many of us when we read this, perhaps you're hearing it for the first time or maybe you've read it before. It's like, okay, okay. So does that mean like I need to start a soup kitchen? Like, or, or do I need to go on like my bi-weekly prison visits? Because like I'm not, I haven't been doing those. And that's quite hectic because I don't want to land in the goats like. But I don't think that this passage is so much about social justice. Although that's noble and needed and God would, and if your heart's stirred in those particular areas, do it. But I don't think this passage is so much about social justice as it is about selfishness. And I'll explain that just in a moment to you. Well, let me do it now. If you look at each of these particular lists of things, and I don't think they're specific. I don't think you now need to write up the list and go like, okay, January, I'm clothing a naked person. February, I'm visiting a prisoner. March, I'm setting up a soup kitchen. I think when you look at each of these particular incidences, you recognize how inconvenient help is to each of these people. Like, it is inconvenient to go to prison. And in many ways... Perhaps we even think, do they even deserve it? Should I really extend grace and time to somebody who's done a wrong? Or somebody who's sick? It's difficult to nurture and look after somebody who's sick. Or it's costly to clothe somebody who's naked. I think the greater imagery that Jesus is trying to get across here is, how much of your life is convenient and built around you? And how much of your life is inconvenient and built around Christ. I think the loud message that Jesus is trying to speak to us here is a life of inconvenience versus a life 
of convenience. I don't think many of us, and perhaps we should, are getting up and praying this prayer. God, thank you for today. Man, would you bless me and my family with an incredibly inconvenient day. I really, I pray God that you would scatter just naked people. Don't pray that prayer, but... (laughs) But God, I pray that you, you put inconvenience in my path. I pray that you put awkward, sacrificial incidences and people and difficult situations in my path. I think we're praying prayers like this. God, please bless me. Please top up the bank account. Please keep the family healthy. If you could throw in a holiday. Now, I'm not even saying any of those prayers are wrong. I'm just saying, perhaps when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, we should be praying prayers of inconvenience. We should be saying, Jesus, truthfully, if if I'm going to live a life that looks like and doesn't just look like a sheep, but is a sheep, is surrendered. It is one that says, God, whatever inconvenience, whatever sacrifice, whatever you need me to do in the name of Jesus, God, I am available for you to inconvenience my lives. And we'll unpack that thought in a moment. But the fourth and final observation, which perhaps some of you have seen, some of you maybe not, is this. When the passage said, Jesus said, they asked Jesus, when did we do this? When did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? He responded both to the righteous and the unrighteous by the same token. He said this, these are the words of Jesus. He said, when you did it for the least of these, so we get that, we're like, okay, perfect. It's those who are struggling, those who are less fortunate, those who need an intervention. But then Jesus says something very interesting. He doesn't say that you did it for me implying you did it in the name of Jesus. He says you did it to me, implying I was in them. Implying if you want to find Jesus, perhaps we should stop looking for him in pews and steeples and start finding him in people. How sad is it that for some of us, the only time we pursue Jesus is on a Sunday service when he's waiting for us in people in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. There have been multiple conversations over the last 15 years of being a pastor when people will say to me, Cole, can I just be honest? I feel like my prayers are hitting the ceiling. I feel like Jesus is far away. And I wish that I knew what I know now because what I would look at them is yes, I would tell them to read their Bible and yes, I would tell them to get in a home group and yes, I would tell them to be at church, but I would tell them this now, knowing what I know. Find Jesus in the inconvenience. Find Jesus in the people. Many of us are waiting to find him in a steeple or in a pew or in a service. And church, it would be a great travesty if that's the only time and way that you found Jesus. Jesus is literally waiting for you in places of inconvenience, which is why it is a disaster that this world has set up a world that tries to make everything convenient for us. Literally, we've been squeezed into a model where we try and build only convenience. And you realize by building a life of convenience, you squeeze Jesus out the picture. So, the question is, 
I'm asking it. I hope you're asking it. How do we make sure that we live lives that look like and don't just look like that are sheep and not goats? And I'm going to use four words that perhaps you've heard before. They're going to be used in a different context. But I believe four ways that are extremely helpful for us to make sure that on that judgment day, when Jesus separates sheep from goats, that you and I land in the sheep cordon area. And here are the four words. Crouch, touch, pause, engage. I apologize for the non-rugby enthusiasts, but I've known for years that I'm going to preach a sermon on crouch, touch, pause, engage. They don't actually use that terminology anymore, but I believe these, three, these four words are a great illustration of how to live a life of a sheep, a follower of Jesus, a true follower of Jesus. And so let me unpack that for you for a moment. Crouch gives this idea. It's used in a scrum, which my wife, who's Italian, calls it a scramble. And I'm deeply embarrassed for my kids in the future with the word she's going to say on the side of the rugby field. But nevertheless, in a scrum, what happens is you've got to crouch in order to touch, pause, and engage. So let me start by saying this, that if you cannot crouch, you cannot touch, pause, and engage. A scrum will not work until you've crouched. So don't bother about the touch, pause, and engage unless you and I have made a decision to crouch. What do I mean by crouch? I believe our posture as Christians needs to be one of a crouch, which means it needs to be a humble posture. It needs to be a lowly posture. It needs to be one where truly we are not at the center of our story. I think sometimes people think that the opposite of humility, okay, the opposite of humility is pride, but I think sometimes we misappropriate or misunderstand pride. I think we think pride is arrogance, and then we immediately say, I'm not prideful because I'm not arrogant. Arrogant, we don't have time to go into, but they're just not nice people to be around. But pride, I would sum up as anything that has a centrality around you. So if you build your life around you, you have pride. If the center of your story is you and your family, if you're building a life that is convenient for you and your family only, pride is at the center of your life. And so there is no crouch, there is no posture of humility in I and my and everything built around me. And so my heart challenge to you is for you to do a synopsis, a, a, a check on your life and go, how much of my Monday to Sunday is built about me and my convenience? So this crouch is super important for us. And the world, the world builds these lofty penthouses and pencil clubs. But I believe heaven shouts, how low can you go? How low can you go? It has to be counterculture. It can't look like the world. Everything is about your esteem, your reputation, how big, how flashy, how much, how much. It just sounds like a big me at the center of your story. Is there the crouch that Christ is asking for in our lives? 
because we will be judged on how we treat the least, not the lofty. And if we truthful, much of our thoughts are how the lofty view us, not the least. The crouch. I don't think this parable is so much about social justice as it is about selfishness. We think sex, drugs, and rock and roll, sex, drugs, and alcohol are the big taboo sins of today. But church, I actually think selfishness is the number one hit on the billboards. You know what's scary about selfishness? You can't see it because you're so damn selfish. John the Baptist says it best. He says he must increase, he being Jesus, he must increase in our world. He must increase in our hearts. He must increase in our businesses. But the only way, church, he will increase is if I decrease. I must decrease. I must crouch. I have to crouch. How will I follow Christ and not crouch? He must increase in our world. The, the world is... You don't need me to stand here and tell you it's broken and falling apart and it desperately needs to see Jesus. It cannot be a Sunday service, lip service that we give to Jesus. It needs a crouch from Christians that say, God, I, am, I, I, I pursue humility. God, it is less of me. I am, the story of my life is about you at the center. It's about others at the center. It can't be about me and my comfort and my convenience. The story cannot be about me. I need to crouch, how low can you go? And so in a world that wants you to stand tall, would you choose to crouch? The second is touch. And as I've already alluded to, our society has designed itself to not see pain. Think about it. Highways, complexes, malls, take a lot, Mr. Delivery, I don't hate any of these things. I'm just giving you an observation that these things have been put in place for our convenience, and because of that, we miss the pain. Like highways and high walls divide and define us. You know that saying, see no evil, hear no evil? The problem is that you see no evil and you hear no evil. And what's important is this idea of the power of proximity, that we have to be in proximity with pain. You don't know what you don't know, and that's extremely helpful if you're wanting to build a convenient life. Then keep traveling the highways. Keep, keep living the lives that don't let you see the pain. You don't know what you don't know. But if we're truly going to make a difference and live the lives that Jesus is calling us to, then we need to know. We need to have proximity with the pain. If you can't touch it, it can't touch you. And devil will be quite happy keeping it this way. A bunch of convenient Christians that build lives around convenience. Have you, have you ever taken Play-Doh? I feel like we buy Play-Doh every week in our house. 
You ever taken Play-Doh? All you need to do with Play-Doh is leave it untouched and it goes hard. You play with Play-Doh, you work Play-Doh, and it stays soft. All you need to do, all the devil needs to do in your life is to make sure you're untouched and your heart will get hard and callous and disconnected and you won't even know it. And the very thing that's meant to be soft and pliable for God to work with, because it's untouched, it's unpliable. And when it's unpliable, it's unusable. It's hard and it's callous. So I want to challenge you, and I really want to challenge you, to be intentional with your life. And to those who are parents here, be intentional with your kids' lives. Do not build a life that shows them only the highways and the complexes. Make sure you position your life and your family's life around inconvenience. Schedule it into your diary like you would any other thing. You know how you say, we need to sit down and plan our year? We're going to put the holidays because it's important and it is important to have family time? We'll schedule mission trips. Schedule times when you're in places of inconvenience and hurt and heartache and pain because as long as you avoid them, we get hard. So be intentional about this proximity of pain. So the second point, the first is crouch. The second is you've got to touch. You've got to make sure that there's the touch. The third is pause, and this really is what sets us apart as Christians from every humanitarian work and good deed is the pause. The pause is this wait on God moment, this spirit-led, God-ordained, God-whispered move. And in fact, there's a beautiful word that's found throughout mostly the Psalms. It's a word called selah, and theologians have debated for years what, what the actual definition of the word selah is. And so you could find more than what I've found today. But I love this particular definition. The idea of the word cella in this definition is to praise and to pause, or to pause and to praise. The pause means this. It means to stop. It means to ponder. It means to contemplate. It means to weigh up. And I like this particular word. It means to hang. It's like just Stay long enough for that pain to wound you. Stay in the moment so that your heart truly has been taken through the mill, that God can truly use you. Pause long enough. See, I think sometimes we see pain and then our lives just get busy and we get on with it. But we need to take that pain into our quiet time with Jesus and go, God, that's disturbing. And I want to just say this is high challenge, but I've done it. Sometimes we'll do it and we even say it with our kids. We'll be like, you know, you, you, you see something or you see what's happening in the Ukraine or you see what's happening with poverty or you see, and then you go, sure, we should really be grateful that we don't have that. Church, I'm not saying great gratitude is not a, a good kind of um, posture to have, but I'm telling you, if you had two kids, and one was in a war-torn or poverty or place of injustice, and the other child said, I'm grateful that I'm not in their situation, and then moved on and said grace and had dinner, you would be broken. That, that was the response of your child. We are, we are not just moved to be grateful. We have 
to be moved to action. And I think I missed this point out from touch. Oh no, I'll say it in a moment. Um, But the pause is this idea of praise and pause or pause and praise. But I love the idea that it's not just pause. I love the idea that praise is attached to the pause. Because if it was just pause, then you sit and you, you wallow in this kind of overwhelming sense of injustice or whatever it is that's going on, and it can become overwhelming. But the word seller gives us this hope because what it says is, hang there, let it hurt, let the pain grip your heart, but then move your eyes off the circumstance and onto Jesus. Move your eyes onto praise. Get your eyes onto the one who is the great deliverer, who is the name above every other name. Praise God over that situation because he is able, he is strong, he is good, he is willing. And so it's this praise and pause that God is wanting to get in our lives. The other thing that praise does, which is beautiful, is that it removes this idea of white savior complex. Let me call it that. It's this idea that, like, I'm going to go and change the world. Look at me. I'll start a soup kitchen. And what it does is it moves your eyes off of me onto him. This is, what's your solution, God? What are you going to do? Because often what happens is we're moved by our emotions and we want to do something, but often when we're moved just by the flesh and not by the spirit, when we don't have a pause in the presence of God, when we don't praise Jesus and say, what's your plan? Because make no mistake, there's no problem on earth that there isn't a plan for in heaven. Make no mistake, when we do that, what happens is it produces something that can often be temporary, that can often cause this impulsive, emotional, knee-jerk reaction, but it lacks conviction, and it lacks substance, and it lacks sustainability, and often, often, it does more damage than good. Because we move in and we do a soup kitchen for two weeks, and then we duck. And people that were asking the question, where is God? For two weeks, they get a moment, and then we need to pause, and then praise so that we get this answer. And what happens when we begin to do that, when we begin to pause and praise, once we've crouched and touched, we begin to hear the Holy Spirit speak to us, where a whisper becomes a roar, and a flicker becomes a flame, and a call becomes a conviction. And then we truly pray the Lord's Prayer that says, thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we don't have time to do a teaching on heaven, but let me tell you that heaven has no tears, it has no pain, and it has no problems. And so if truly God has said the way that you and I should pray is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he is not giving us a lofty prayer that doesn't have substance. He is giving us a prayer that is full of possibility and that has the ability to eliminate Injustice, but it's going to take you and me choosing to crouch, touch, pause, and then engage. Let me tell you something about the engage. Once you've done the touch or the crouch, touch, pause, the hardest point is the engage. I've heard many ideas. I've heard many plans. Many people have told us what the church should do, to which I go, bless you, off you go, church. 
The engage is difficult because it's going to cost you something. Do you know what it's like? Do you know when you're at the, um, you're at the shops and you see this like, item of clothing and you're like, I, I want, this is, a, turn to your wife, you're like, this is exactly what I've been wanting, like in my mind, in my dreams, like it's the perfect, I, I love it, just put it on and it fits tight like a glove and you're like, my goodness, we might have to have a fourth child because I look so good in this piece of clothing. Right? You make your way off to the counter and they tell you the price and you're like, put it back. Put it back. <laughs> Hell no. I cannot afford that. See, often we want to do things. It looks good to do the things. We desire to do the things. But then there will always come a time when you have to pay the price. And the price is costly. Because those naked, hungry, desperate, stranger, prisoner, they are going to require you to crouch and to be humble and to decrease so that he can increase. And so the engagement is going to cost you. It's going to cost you your time. It's going to, it's going to be so inconvenient. It's going to be disturbingly frustrating. But you and our church need to make a decision. Do we take Matthew 25 seriously? And how important is it to engage? Because I know what can happen. I know the questions I ask myself. Like, does it actually... Is there actually any fruit... What happens if I've done stuff and done stuff and I haven't seen the fruit and I haven't seen the change? Well, church, that's actually not on me. That's on him. I do what he tells me to do. I sow the seed, I be obedient, and I leave it up to him. And just the other day, I was chatting with our media team and they reminded me of this beautiful story that actually started 15 years ago. And I tell you what, when you watch the story right now, the people involved 15 years ago wouldn't have dreamt in a million years that 15 years later this stuff was taking place. And so I want to challenge you. Never underestimate the power of your engagement. Watch the story. Hi, my name is Davani. Um, this is me and I'm me. Um, I was born at it. I have a big problem. I remember the day I heard me speak on it, on it that time. I said, that, that time me. <laughs> and I was, I was, I was mad. And I was, I was angry. And, and I was, I was frustrated. And my feet followed me my whole life. It marked me and defined me. And everyone around me, Make fun of me. Um, so I just run <laughs> from there. Then in and something happened. I made, I made Funa dance. And I say, hey, I don't know, but I can dance. <laughs> I love dance. It makes me calm my life and it makes me think. Do dance, I can expect my friends. And talk to others. I can talk to people and God and my faith. 
the team just to keep that graphic up there just for a moment because I wonder if Scott in 2006 knew that giving extra maths lessons an inconvenient non-glamorous sacrificial is this even going to make a difference kind of posture 15 years later, because Beggy was intercepted by an extra maths lesson, who nine years later invites Bonga to a dance event at Ignat, who gets radically saved and does our intern program, and God stirs in his heart, and he starts a true life dance program that intercepts young lives and believes in them and says, this township is not your, 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 your predicament or your entrapment, and it's not your story. There's a greater story. There's a kingdom of God's story over your life, and inter intersects with a young man, Tobani, who can't speak, but he can dance. Man, what happens if Scott hadn't taught maths? What happens if he hadn't done that? I don't know, I'm not God. Maybe he has another way. Fifteen years later, there is still fruit from a seed that was sown. Never underestimate the engagement. But church, we have to engage let me say it like this. Your hearts are not truly moved. Your hearts are not truly moved unless your feet do too. It's not enough to have our attention. God needs our action. You know what's beautiful about God's timing? This last week we get an email from Z and Trisha and They've been talking about doing extra maths and science and English down at the Open Skies Giba community. They said they've got 11 kids who failed matric. And they need to help them this year. Oh my God, only you can send through that request now while we've been dreaming about this message. And so a shout out. I'm not asking you if you have the time. 
I'm asking, if you, I'm asking you if you have the inconvenient plan to say, okay, God. So I know Scotty's clever, but he's not a maths teacher. It's not about being a maths teacher. Look, shout out to the maths teachers or the science teachers. Please, get involved. Sign up today. We should be seeing a community redeemed because our prayer is God. Let me be inconvenienced on a daily basis so that not only can I be you, but I can see you. Not one of us, and I say this with all humility, not one of us should be saying, I I can't find Jesus. I think you may be looking in the wrong places. He's waiting for you. He's just waiting for you off the highways. He's waiting for you in the areas of inconvenience. And I know today's been challenging, but I have to just bring this home with one final thought. And that is this. Today, we stand at a crossroads of great danger of letting this be a goat message and not a sheep message. If we walk out of today, it's my greatest prayer for you today. If you walk out of here and go, great sermon, nice service, and don't put anything into action. Now, I know there are many of you, many of you that are already doing this. So I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to heap any guilt. I'm just trying to say we should be waking up daily. Say, Jesus, I anticipate you because I anticipate inconvenience. And just this last week, I am... I was driving out my driveway and we live in a little complex and so I know the lady who works in the home next door to us and it was just starting to drizzle but I was kind of in a bit of a rush and, um, and I drove up past her and she had a 2k walk and I had a car. And do you know what thought went through my head first? I really feel like having to talk to her. Oh my Colin. How deeply selfish are you? What's wrong with you? I don't know if you talk to yourself like that, but I've got no problem with Jesus talking to me like that. I really don't. I need him to, I need to decrease. Open the car, spend two, I don't know what that means to her, but it certainly was a tiny, tiny bit of inconvenience but a huge highlight of how selfish I still am I look at how many ladies have to walk tens of kilometers to work each day and how many of us drive past without even blinking this entire upper highway community should be talking about this church because we can't drive past people without putting them in our cars how often I picked up people and then they're like wherever you're going I'm like for real, we're going to be dictated, I'm talking to me, I'm going to be dictated to by, please take me wherever that is not inconvenient for you. When I could go two more Ks and get you to a taxi stop where you still got 45 minutes in a car, in a taxi, and then you walk, but I can't go two Ks. Church, we should be getting up every morning and going, man, There's an adventure ahead 
as I wait to see you, Jesus. So God, inconvenience me. All right, amen. Nothing more to say. Would you close your eyes? Hey, I'm just wondering that perhaps you're here today, maybe you've been to church many times, maybe it's your first time, maybe you're online with us and, um, and you don't know Jesus. You know, you cannot crouch, touch, pause and engage friend unless you know the one who crouched, touched, paused and engaged. And he did all of that. He humbled himself and came here to earth. He did not need to do that, but he crouched. He touched humanity. The Bible says that in every way he felt and he knows the sin of man, yet he did not sin. He felt, he touched. And then in the garden, which we'll speak about at the Easter series, he paused and said, God, not my will, but your will be done. And then he went to the cross and he engaged and he took the sin of the world so that you and I would not have to carry the weight of the world because we can't and only He can. And when we respond to God by saying, God, I need a savior, the Bible speaks about immediately He makes His home in your heart. And so I don't want anybody walking out this room or perhaps even online wondering whether you are saved, whether you have received salvation, whether you have a living, breathing relationship with Jesus. And so with everybody's eyes closed in no way to embarrass you, but to give you the greatest opportunity and that is to respond to the love of Jesus. I'm asking that you would just pop up your hand right where you are so I can see and I will pray with you and you can pop that hand straight back down. Thank you, that's awesome. Awesome, awesome. Hands going up all over the place. Thank you, thank you. Awesome. You pop it up, pop it straight back down. We're gonna just all pray together. Anybody else wanna pray that prayer today? Don't miss this opportunity. Awesome. All right. Wouldn't you, uh, won't you mind just repeating after me? Say, Jesus, today I surrender like a sheep to the slaughter. I thank you that you went to the cross, that you died, that you took my sin and shame and you nailed it to the cross once and for all. Jesus, today I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. Before you lift your eyes, and normally we would clap and, and welcome you to the family of faith, and we can do that in a moment. If you just know right now that you need to pray a prayer of inconvenience, why don't you just put your hand, your hands in the air, as just a sign of surrender to say, God, like a sheep to the slaughter, not a goat that looks like a sheep, puts up a fight Father you see hands raised all over this auditorium come on if you haven't raised your hands and you know you need to do it God you know you know the plans that you have for them and I know it's not popular to pray plans of inconvenience but I pray them that we your people would be inconvenienced so that others can see you and so that we may see you. In Jesus' name, amen.